Hello and welcome to Resonant Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Aaron Coulter and I'm the news editor at Resonant Advisor. Adrian Sherwood's love affair with reggae began as a teenager in High Wycombe. He started DJing in his early teens and then threw himself into the music industry. By the time he was 20, he had run a record shop, set up a distribution company and run multiple record labels. In the 1980s, he forged a name for himself as a producer, putting his own distinctive, uncluttered stamp on all kinds of music, from reggae to industrial to jazz. The number of projects he's put his name to is staggering. He's made psychedelic Afro dub with Africa Head Charge, remixed Depeche Mode, hit the studio with Lee Scratch Perry, dabbled in experimental hip-hop with Packhead, and overseen reggae collectives like singers and players. He burst out of the blocks in 2015, releasing a collaborative album with Pinch and announcing a new compilation series called Sherwood at the Controls. He stopped by our London office this week to discuss the highs and lows of his four-decade career. How did you discover reggae? I think like a lot of people in England, our society is quite multiracial. So we were listening to um, every type of music, you know, pop music. The first exposure to reggae would have been Millie Small's My Boy Lollipop when I was probably six years of age or something, I think when that came out. And you, but you know, you viewed that just as a pop song. We didn't say this, this is reggae, for example. Then I started hearing the skinhead reggae stuff. And I, again, just saw it as pop music. I didn't think, oh, this is particularly, I was like analyzing it. Uh, when I reached 12, I used to, uh, I, I started getting really into what was coming, the flow, because I was buying the pop tunes. I was running a little disco at school from the age of 13. But um, the consistency of good tunes coming that were we knew were coming from Jamaica, I also like Calypso's, you know, at the time, you know, the mad rude. I used to like the rude records to start with. You know, things like Prince Buster's Big Five and the novelty Jamaican tunes. And I was buying them in tandem with, you know, John Tonkus or T-Rex or Slade or whatever else I might have been buying. Plus, I was really into the soul stuff, like all the other kids, Tamla, all the Motown Chartbusters stuff. But the reggae just went on and on and on with like one gimmicky tune or one rude tune, or one funny one, which is what got me into it to start with. And then these amazing songs came after. So I think what got me into it was, I had a, a particular friend, Gilbert Barker, who, who's sadly dead now, but we used to sit, you know, we were best friends, and I used to sit with him and his sister in her room while she steamed her hair, listening to one of those little record boxes, you know, the little box that you had in your bedroom, and just putting one seven-inch on after a pile of them after another, and listening to Cherry O' Baby by Eric Donaldson or um, Count Prince Miller's Mule Train or whatever else. And then uh, one thing led to another. I became quite obsessed with it. And as you mentioned, there, you, you got sort of started in with DJing as well. Tell me about Newlands and, and what that was like. The Newlands Club um, was a, a soul club in the town originally. It was run by Joe Farkerson, who... Um, I'd lived in South London, had been to school in South London. And it was really weird because he'd moved 
um, to High Wycombe with his wife, Carol. And he'd promoted dances in London. And my father died when I was five. But he, he and he, he he lost everything when he was became ill. It was like quite a sad story, and um, my mum had a really hard time. But his his he he owned three hotels in London, and one of them was called the Liam Court Hotel, which is on Liam Court Road in Streatham. And Joe, the first ever dance he ever put on, which is in the early sixties, because he was um, Joe's. Um, Got be sixteen years older than me, and he 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 um, put it on in my dad's hotel when my dad owned it. So it was a really weird connection we had, and he became like a father to me. But he started the Newlands Club, and um, it started as a soul club, and then it became more of a reggae club. It kind of, you know, the, the weather and the demand, and some people stopped coming, and. We started DJing there, my friend Steve Graham and I, in the afternoons with our little Roadrunner disco show. <laughs> we had playing to the under-15s on a Saturday and a Sunday, eventually. First Saturday afternoons, then as it got more and more popular, we did both a Saturday and a Sunday. And eventually I'd play early evenings, even though I was underage, to, while people were coming in and, you know, before the main act would play. So I ended up playing alongside some really um, great people like Emperor Roscoe, Judge Dredd, Johnny Walker, even Dave Lee Travis down there, um, Steve Bernard. We then had uh, Benny King down there. We had um, Johnny Nash actually opened the club. This was where it was more soulful because he was a friend of Joe's. We had some uh, mad things down there. Was it kind of unusual have, to have names like that going to to a venue in, in High Wycombe or was that happening across London at the time? Well, I think everyone was looking for venues. That club, you know, we could feed... I think they squeezed in 900 when Johnny Nash was in by taking the windows out. You know, it was that kind of time. Um, I think the club comfortably held, you know, say, well, not comfortably, but you could squash in 500. And that's, to this day, a venue where, you know, a big act would play. You know, nowadays, if a band's um, wanting a gig, you know, it's good they've got a gig on a Thursday night or a Friday. Or a Thursday night, you know, maybe on a more provincial place. And then, but, you know, why not? It's good playing smaller clubs. And if you're not played High Wycombe, High Wycombe at the time was, um, you know, a couple of years later was where a lot of the whole punk thing, the Nags Head with Ron Watts and everybody um, were promoting dances. The town, we, did the, we promoted the town hall in later years, you know, a couple of years after that, um, the Chilton Rooms, also, there was lots of things going on in Wickham. And it sounds like you, there was quite a bit of momentum there until one summer the weather was just too good, too warm. Is that right? Well, what happened, the club was doing well and then I think, you know, with a really hot summer, people don't want to when it's like 85 degrees be in a hot club. And that summer was the balance when it went from being more like a, a balance between soul and a bit of reggae to being nearly more, much more reggae. And that, that, to be honest with you, for business, um, it was quite well known at the time, you know, that the reggae fans would come and have like two special brews and a spliff. And the um, <laughs> the soul the soul boys would drink 10 pints and their girlfriends would be swilling baby sham all night. So as a club owner, you'd much better off having a soul crowd. And then that, that really, I think, uh, sadly, because obviously I'm a reggae head, but that was more like the end of the club in the long run because it couldn't sustain itself on the um, 
the reggae crowd didn't didn't help um, keep Newlands going. Although you know that was where I think Rodigan played, if I'm not mistaken, his first or one of his first gigs, because he was from Oxford. Just you know, um, David, and uh, he worked a lot with Joe, putting dances on at um, a lot of holiday camps. They used to do kind of like West Indian parties and stuff. And Dave was a big player in establishing a lot of that. And how did things evolve from from DJing um, at Newlands to getting more deeply involved with the music industry? Well, Joe, again, was my link. Um, he, he kind of took me under his wing. It was like my fa- a father to me. And um, he'd, in the 60s, he'd worked for the Palmer brothers and he'd worked in promotion. And he'd worked with you know Max Romeo on the Wet Dream record, that Wet Dream campaign, which, if anyone doesn't know, is a rude reggae record, <laughs> again, that I'd known prior to knowing Joe. And... Um, it also worked with the promotion department for the clubs. They had a club, I think it was Club 67, the Palmer's owned, and they also owned, to this day they still own, I do believe, Jeffrey's got the Apollo Club in Wilsdon. And um, Palmer had gone out of business when they had that property crash, I think it was 73. And enrolling the, t- you know, then they'd, or 72, and they were just like trying to re-get everything back together again. So they started at Palmer Records, and um, I got a little job there when I was uh, 15, running around the north of England. I stayed at my uncle's up in uh, Lancashire, in Leyland, and I was going up to Wigan, where the Wigan Casino was, and all these odd places, promoting um, the new releases that Palmer had just put out on the train. I was doing train journeys and going around doing a promotion campaign for them. With the goal of trying to get these other record shops to, to take these these things in or with the intention of trying to get the record shops to take the stock um also palm had a catalog of northern soul stuff clifford curry and other things so i went up there and saw russ win stanley and his partner and did a couple of things there and then um, i was trying to promote um i think it was uh wolverton mountain and uh, uh claudette miller tonight's the night and um reissue of Wet Dream and on the Ocean label and a few other things. And uh, it also done Sinners Where You're Gonna Run and Reggae Hit The Town and was just reissuing, it was was, was, was trying to get Palmer Records back again. And um, I then ended up working in the shop for a while. Then I got my driving license and I could, I could go back and forth from Wickham to Harlesden quite quickly because it was not actually that far. And, you know, like a 45-minute drive in those days or, or something. And um, then I finished myself at college. And Joe said, um, look, let's uh, the Newlands Club's had it, basically, by then. We were promoting things in other venues. And I was helping him. Uh, doing stuff, I think, called Interspin all around Hillingdon area in schools as well. And then he proposed to me we started uh, a little distribution company. And that was J and A distribution. Yeah. Tell me about how, how that 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 lasted for a couple of years. Tell me about that experience. Well, J J and A. It should have just been called J A. It stood for Joe and Adrian distribution, but it should have been called J A. You know, as well for like Jamaica. Uh, we had uh, a few friends driving. Frank Rock, Doctor Pablo, Pete Stroud, Richard Charlton. Uh, the problem we had though, because it was like embryonic days of distribution, 
we were operating out of 78 Craven Park Road to start with, which is where Jetstar started. And he definitely took the idea, well, if they can do it, I'm going to do it after when we moved out. And that's when he started uh, Jetstar after we'd done J&A from the same building. Um, but the problem we were facing, we, we, we were taking all the little labels like um, Ethnic Fights, Click, um, we had Grove Music, all, all, all the little labels. They all had their own van and they'd go and distribute all over the north of England. And it really wasn't worth their while a lot of time. Unless they had a new release, they'd be going up there, driving to Huddersfield and the bloke would like embarrassingly buy six singles off them or something. It wasn't, wasn't perhaps worth having your own van. So we made the proposal to each of the labels, look, give us a discount, we'll do the distribution for you. But the margins were so small that by the time we were distributing Virgin and they were giving us like 7% or 8% off, um, and then we were crediting back big shops like HMV and or taking Trojan, again, a very low percentage they were giving us. But we wanted to carry them because we were... We were then put, started putting our own records out because we were making much bigger margins on them and trying to promote our own label alongside carrying other huge tunes, maybe filling our van up with a tune that we were making 6 or 7% on. We, all we needed was a couple of bad debts and eventually, uh, two years into it, J&A hit the wall and I was left holding a load of debts secured against my um, mother and stepfather's house, which was a bit painful. So finishing J&A, I then started Hit Run at the age of 19. Now, as you've got to bear in mind, I was only 19, two years in. And the debt was like, seriously, it was, it was basically a third of the value of a house. So I was like crapping myself, to be honest, at the time. So you've started Hit Run, you're sort of um, saddled with this debt. How, how did things sort of progress from there? How long did it take you to, to sort of climb out of that It debt? took me, to be honest with you, it took me until... I was 25 and had been running on you for three years before I actually managed to clear all the debts off from that period. And everyone thinking, oh, you make a lot of money out of running record labels, or you did. I worked my way out of paying off the debts more by doing jobs than I did um, by ever releasing anything. Like kind of production jobs? Remixes to start with, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I guess I wanted to ask you about in terms of getting into to production, um, how did you sort of get into that side of things? Behind the mixing desk? I, I bullshitted my way along, really, to be quite honest. No, what happened was um, the first record I made, I literally made completely for fun. I, I hummed the bass lines to a Calypso bass player called Clinton Jack who lived in High Wycombe. I then had Fish, met Fish Clark, who was Prince Farai's drummer. I met Crucial Tony through my friend um, Glenn Moore Jr. Williams. And his family and friends, you know, Tony's cousin was Bigger Morrison, who did Jazz Jamaica, the great Clifton. And I went in the studio and um, made a dub album, uh, named it Creation Rebel after a Burning Spear song. It seemed, it was an idea my mate Jerry had from All Ears, a record shop in Harlesden, because we kind of started a little label called Creation Rebel first, and then it seemed it would be a good name for a band. And then the idea with it, we thought that could become a good band for Prince Farai as a backing band. So I thought it could act as a backing band. And I put the record out and John Peel picked it up and he played three tracks in a row one night. And that was it. I was kind of, oh, everyone's like, oh, that's really great. I love that. 
And I thought, oh, this is easy. I'm going to make my own ones instead of licensing tapes. So any chance I got after that, I kept, you know, um, blundering into studios and uh, shouting on that album, shouting to Dennis Bavella, who's uh, engineered it for me. More delay, more delay, more delay. And then after doing a few gigs, I then started actually physically mixing the gigs myself. Again, after realising it was a good way to go because the sound man didn't know what he was doing and I at least knew how it was supposed to sound. And then adding like just a space echo to start with and then when I did get into a studio, it gave me the footing from doing the live sound first to understand a bit that, you know, and also from everyone saying, you know, about having your own sound. So I quickly picked up on those two little guidelines really to... I'm interested in how, how you went about, you know, being sort of self-taught, um, getting your own sort of signature. Um, I think you get influenced by people. Prince Farai's productions were very, very, very raw, very empty. I, and he also tried to do the slowest one drop possible. So he definitely had, a, you know, he tried to make it very slow and things that suited his, his mood. So watching people like him working, you know, he gave me credibility just by working with him. Also, I'm not a musician, so I, I, I'm not a proper producer in my own mind to this day. So I ended up more like a sound man, you know. I remember a journalist who worked for Sounds, Edwin Ponce. Um, I don't think he particularly liked me or liked what I did. And he, he described me in a derogatory way, I think, as a, a fan who got his hands on a mixing desk. But Edwin was really right. I was a fan who got his hands on a mixing desk. And didn't let go of it. I just kind of persevered on the live gigs. And then before you know it, I got people complimenting me, saying, oh, wow, that's amazing. You're sounding, you got it sounding great. I then bluffed my way into a studio. And then by working with great musicians and then great singers, it makes you look good. It gave me a chance to experiment, trying ideas, things I'd heard. I could realise what instrument, how they were made making my own experiments from reading other people, what they did, people like Connie Plank and other non-reggae producers and applying ideas about playing things down tubes and experimenting with ambient recording, playing things through speakers and remiking them and and then the use of the effects. And then spending hours and hours with my um, then wife and partner, Kishi Yamamoto, experimenting together in the studio on... Um, you know, using synths and hiring for one night and things like that. I think experience is the best teacher, as they say, you know, being in the studio and putting that amount of hours in and, you know, spoiling myself by allowing myself to experiment on things. Um, I was very lucky. You've said before that you like to kind of balance new sounds with, with something that sounds ancient or something that's breathing. Is, is that a kind of style that you've taken throughout your career? I think you've got to pay a nod to whatever's going on around you. You know, like, not pay a nod, but you know, take it on. If you, I think the best way to judge it is if you hear something, or if I hear something, and I'm like jealous of it. I think well, not jealous isn't quite the right word. I think wow, that sounds brilliant. I wish I'd been there when that was done. I was like, wow, that sounds great. It's worth investigating who did it, how they did it, and uh, what spirit it was done under, so you can try and perhaps. Um, get some of that fresh spirit in something. I don't mean it's like just nicking things, but cause it doesn't happen very often. But, you know, sometimes I hear something, it's like, wow, that is just absolutely nuts. And 
working with new people with new ideas and new engineers and trying to stay abreast of the things is very important. And also, I think at the same time, knowing all the tricks I've picked up over the years and the understanding of miking um, or the need, the main thing is the need for having good microphones and good performances on your recordings in conjunction perhaps with a lot of digital stuff and how you um, how you approach anti-production things so it doesn't just sound like everybody else's stuff and bore the life out of you. I, I mean, you've worked on records, you know, that stretch obviously far beyond... Um beyond reggae there's industrial jazz records um all kinds of stuff do you employ the same approach across the board or do you sort of tailor it to different different genres or styles i think if you're um if you're listening to sound you hear it a certain way so i mean with me i i, I tend to try and just make whatever i'm doing not cluttered so i try to like sometimes strip things down and make them make the musicians play half as much sometimes when recording something that's really good but it's just too too intense everything um i apply those techniques all the time or approaches um and i'm I'm, I'm very aware that um you've got to be open-minded as well because if you don't you you know you miss out on loads of things so i try and create an, an environment where whoever i'm working with feels they can do something special that day, magic, and um, express themselves, and usually see what you know. Usually get a very creative uh, involvement happening. That's what that's the idea. I mean, before you, you mentioned uh, the gigs where you would, where you kind of cut your teeth doing live mixing, there were you know people from like you know the Clash, Sex Pistols going to those shows. What was your relationship with with punk as that was coming up? By the time the whole, in inverted commas, punk thing happened, a friend of mine in town who again became one of our partners, we had a little shop for a while called Sidewalk Records in Harlesden, which was in the building we had. And that was Ron Watts. And Ron worked with another friend of mine to this day called Dave Morisoli. He, he ran the shop. And Dave had always been turning us on to like the residents, um, lots of stuff, you know, uh, Throbbing Gristle, um you know, Genesis Porridge, all, like, all, all sorts of like weird stuff that I'd just be sat there thinking, oh my God, this is, you know, like whatever. I like liked certain things that, that were becoming, um, or, or um, you know, Devo and whatever else, stuff coming from the States. Then it, suddenly it seemed that like all this stuff was coming from England, that my mates would be banging about, oh, this is really exciting, this is really great. And we'd drive over to Friars in Aylesbury to see, you know, I remember going to see the Ramones and the Revillos in... 75 or 6 or something and um the um I might get all my dates wrong but it's around that you know similar period and Ron Watts who we worked with who I mentioned before he had this band called Brewers Droop and if my memory serves me cor- correctly yeah I think he had uh, Mark Knopfler on guitar in the band and we we you know we it was a horrible band really it was not my cup of tea it was all bawdy you know kind of songs and Ron pissed in the front singing but Ron was a, Ron was a great bloke. He's like a big ex kind of boxer, and Ron promoted um, the Nags Head, and he promoted some venue in Uxbridge, and he also promoted the, the Hundred Club on a Tuesday. So he 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 could put, you know, he, he had Generation X, you know, the the Pistols playing this circuit. Now I didn't, you know, I went to a couple of gigs and it was oh my god, get me out of here, you know. 
But the, the all the people to their credit, like Leiden, um, you know, the Clash, the the, the Slit, the Ruts, lots of other bands, they all um, were getting off on the reggae stuff. So for me, it was being aware of this this movement going on um, more through the eyes of my friends than myself, because Dr. Pablo, who I work with, is my partner at Hit Run. Um, you know, Pete loved it. Pete was going to Tuesday nights and driving Ron because Ron would get like a bit lashed and needed his chauffeur to take him back to Lane End in High Wycombe where he lived. And Pablo would be telling me the next day when we were driving back to London to sell the reggae records, oh, he was, you know, the jam had been on last night. He had this great band. He loved this band. And I'd listen to them all. And to me, it, it, it was cool. It was okay. But it wasn't something I'd be sitting at home like, wow, I like this. I've got to be quite honest. But um, I was very fortunate. I was there and witnessed like lots of mad evenings. That, uh, looking back on, um, you can see why people were kind of fascinated by, by just just the sheer energy and people thinking they could change the world at the time. And that's what we all kind of shared in, in that. And I mean, one of the the first uh, major remix commissions you had was for Depeche Mode. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I used to. We all used to hang out at Rough Trade Shop. Rough Trade was run by some really brilliant people. You know, there was um, Pete Walmsley, who's who's dead now, and his wife, his wife at the time, um, Richard Scott, and, um, obviously Jeff Travis, um, the Scott. There was a whole crew there. It was a really, really amazing, buzzing place. And um, I'd always see Daniel Miller in there, and Daniel had started his label, and he was selling his records out the back of his car. And um, I mean, he'd done Silicone Teens and the, the Normal or a couple of singles. And he said to me, oh, we should do an electronic dub album even then, just laughing. You know, we'll do it. You know, your funny dub records, you do electronic dub record. I said, yeah, we should do. We never actually did, although we were friends, you know, like. Um, and then when he, the, the, the very first remixes started, he said, oh, do you want to do a remix for me? So I said, I said yeah. And then I did a more mad one called Our People People which is like nuts. And he's like, oh, can I use that one as well? I said, okay. Did it on a four track in my house. And that was um, that was one of the first remixes I got invited to do that really got um, people saying, oh, you know, oh, that's mad. And from that time, it tended to me that people would get me to do the mad alternative mix rather than produce or do the main mix. So I think that in a way that, that worked very well for me because I preferred that. Um, but I always ended up as being the one who got the wacky, weirdo version <laughs> rather than, you know. So were you able to, um, you know, sort of knock out these these remixes in parallel with getting on new sound, like sort of back on track? Well, the remixes, to be honest with you, doing that for Daniel, the, the, the I didn't get a fortune for it, but that helped me because in those days you could buy a house in East London for 20, 24, 25 grand. I got, yeah, I know, the, the old days, um, which is what they should still be. It's just disgusting what's going on now with all these trillions of World Bank money just being poured into people's uh, countries. Normal people can't even breathe. That's another whole thing. But um, that enabled me to get a deposit down to buy our first um, our fir our house, a little house in East Ham. And um, I was very grateful for that. But what happened for me was I kept doing the jobs uh, to keep on you afloat, and, and to be quite honest, but you know, I, I I don't know how many countless jobs I did, 
um, to get the funds to keep on you going and to keep sponsoring projects I wanted to do one on you. I kept thinking that, you know, on you would sell tens, you know, I'd add a naught to my sales and I never, I never managed to do it. <laughs> well, I, I, in terms of how things sort of progressed from there, you know, in the early 2000s, you relaunched on you sound, but what, what happened before that? Did it go into a kind of hiatus or? I never, I never stopped running the label, to be honest. What happened was um, the signs were on about like what was going on. I was working with a distributor in France, another one in Germany. And, you know, we, we would sell out to each territory, not sell out, send out the stock to each territory, get whoever, you know, Head Charge, Clay or Mark, you know, was associated with Tacker, Mark Stewart, whoever, going doing gigs. And we would organise tours to promote the records. Now you do records to promote a tour, you know, but those days, literally, you could make on paper, you know, if you got one away, you could get paid properly on, on a record. Um, so we were we were working each market with our partners, but firstly the French record label, the gentleman who ran it suddenly said to me, "Oh, come into my office. I'm into this now." Now this is a man who'd been working, you know, like as a pure reggae head, looking after Burning Spear and amazing other projects in France. He had his foot on the desk and started playing this absolute shit house music to me, and said, "Oh, I'm into this now." And like, I thought, I won't, I won't swear because there's no point, but I wanted to think, you, are you joking? And he, he wasn't, I, but he would suddenly, I think, got so disillusioned with how things seemed to be nosediving sales-wise, he'd convinced himself he liked this horrible stuff he was playing. So I said, I said, Cyril, I said, with the greatest respect, I'm out the door, you know. But the writing was on the wall because the next thing, EFA, our German distributor, went out of business, took me... You know, took on you for some money, but other people, it just closed them down. So you're suddenly in a position of going, you know what, to make the effort to run this quite like I have been doing with, you know, having to having to work my myself crazy to keep propping this up with all the staff and everything. It just went, um, I got into a bit of trouble, to be honest, and reached a point where I found myself in quite a lot of debt. Um, and I either didn't pay the MCPS, didn't pay the pressing plants and all the other suppliers who'd been helping me and who I actually owed. So I just sold everything I had. And I spent two years repaying all the debts. But I've got a friend who's actually from Adelaide in Australia and he said to me, he said, mate, this is, if you've got no honour, you might as well be dead. And I thought, I thought, you're right, Ray, you're right. And I spent two years renting a place in London and the last day I paid off all the money I owed, I then um, managed to get another loan to get another place to live, to buy again. But for a time, I was really on my backside. And it's in that time, it's really interesting to see you find out who actually supports you and um, whatever. And then at that time, I again then had a rejig and tried and rebooted the label. But it took me... You know, it took me quite a long time to get my head around what was going on, why, you know, record shops were closing everywhere, there was no proper um, thing you could rely on. It, it got very, 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 very odd for me. So I, 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 for a time, felt like not even running the label again, but I did continue putting records out under the umbrella of the label. You got kind of caught up in the demise of EMI as well, was, is that right? Well, the next thing I did was I thought, well, look, for for me and everybody else involved, it'd be good if we go through EMI because they were offering us, you know, 
not not fortune, but a reasonable, a little bit of money up front on each project. Um, and But then it all went wrong because then they started going down. So I ended up um, sharing out the, the, the money that we'd got in amongst people that I thought the records were going to be released by. They then said we want to release a couple of others that I hadn't advanced people on. They then didn't release the other ones. We had one example where somebody was supposed to do a tour. It didn't happen. They got work, Their record was just left on a shelf for like ever, never got released. It didn't help their life. And then bit by bit, I'm thinking to myself, what are you doing? You're dealing with like the whole reason you started a label was so you didn't have to deal with these people, having them making decisions for you. And now they're causing me all sorts of stress and problems and... I'd rather be selling out of the back of my car again than going through having some dickhead telling me, like, oh, we've got to release a different record, we can't do this, you can't do that. And you signed an agreement with them. To, to be fair, I don't think it was their fault. I think that that kind of um, character, who you know, that banking character who bought it, you know, thought he was heaven sent and was going to, like, suddenly enlighten the whole of the music business. And sadly, he lost billions. <laughs> but I don't know. You know, it, it, to, to be honest, I don't, you know, the whole collapse of the record industry on one hand is quite funny. Uh, but for, but the impact it had on a lot of us was wow, because it suddenly musicians couldn't earn any money, and um, everyone had to rethink what they did and make new tactics. It must have come as a bit of a relief to be running the show again yourself with with on new sound. Then, well, um, to be honest, I, I felt like giving up for a while. Um, and I was discussing that with my, my friend earlier, you know, I was saying like, you know, you reach a point where you feel, well, you know, this is whatever. Then you have to just dust yourself down and say, well, hang on a second. What are you defending? What are you standing for? You have to keep making tunes if you feel inspired to and getting back like you're, you're uh, a zest for it and feeling like, right, we're going to do something proper and powerful. Sometimes it it means meeting some other young people, you know. Not, I'm not young. I mean, meeting some younger people who, re, you know, recharge you almost. And then, you know, in recent years, I've had a whole bunch of like brilliant younger folk around. Um, youth, can, you know, I've got old people can be very young, and young people can have a very old spirit. But some, not just young that young, but a lot of people around really, really you know, come on, come on, you know, with a positive vibe. And, um, you know, I feel a bit revitalised, I would like to think. <laughs> um, well, I, I mean, in, in terms of your solo uh, career, putting out your first uh, solo album in 2003, was, was that a bit of a, a spark? Did that provide a bit of a spark for you in terms of your career? That, that completely coincided with the end of, like, EFA and everything. And then... Um, Amanda Jones and, and Sue Johnson, who'd, who'd been one of the original rough trade people, my friend from way back, the wonderful, wonderful uh, women. Uh, she said to me, oh, look, do you want to come and do an album of remixes, you know, or do some remixes for me of some of the catalogue? And by the time we realised some of it for religious reasons or whatever, they didn't want remixes doing, I said, well, why don't I make a, a record in my name for you? You say, oh, wow, would you do that? Because, you know, you've never done one. And it actually all made sense because I'd been doing gigs in the previous years in my name. 
And the problem with me is, is my name was on the back of a sleeve as the producer. And there's not very many producer artists at all. So I think, you know, you've got Lee Perry's an exception. But you know, if you put on a bill live tonight, Trevor Horn, unless it was promoted like whoever, how would anybody know that, you know, that the amazing amount of hit tunes Trevor Horn's had? I'm, never, I'm not a Trevor Horn because I've never had that much anything like that success. But the point I'm making, you have to establish yourself as a live entity. And by then, to have that album, to get to make an album where I could put my name on it and I have all the decisions completely on my own and make that record, that really was, was a, a, good, a good point for me. So for the last decade or so, I've like been a person propelled from the back to the front. And also when I'm on posters or little things now, it really helps me that I've got now three records under my belt. Well, four, including the Sherwood and Pinch. Well, you, you mentioned working with younger producers and, you know, a, a newer generation has, has sort of revitalised you. Um, I guess Pinch is probably a, a really key example. H how did you first meet up with him? Well, Pinch um, invited me on a tectonic night. I'd heard about Pinch before. His name kept coming up. I'd heard a couple of things uh, until you actually see somebody in a live context and realise how good they are. It's, uh, it's difficult. But he invited me on, on a tectonic night in London we got on well and I invited him on a, an on you night in Paris that I'd got going on. And then I think it's down to how, how you get on and what things you've got in common and how, how, you, how you can work together. And, and tell me how it got from that sort of dialogue or friendship to, to, to get to a stage where you're like, okay, let's go to the studio together. Well, we went to the studio pretty immediately. We said, oh, look, let's get together. I invited him down to Ramsgate, which is like now Studio City. There's so many, you know, we've got, Congo Natty, um, Serial Killers, Adamski, the whole place is full of like, you know, um, Aloe Darling, there's all sorts of like funny bands down there. It's, it's actually quite a mad place where we are now. I said, come down. And the, the first idea we had was just to cut some tunes to make dub plates. Because, you know, when I'm playing out, I still model myself on the sound system idea that you're um, making tunes that no one else can play back at you. Because if you're you're um, sounding like everybody else and just playing everyone else's tunes, you're a DJ, which is good. I'm not a great DJ, so I try now to push myself forward, do a wee bit of tempo matching, but put tunes that no one can play back at us. And that's how we started. What ended up as the Sherwood and Pinch album is is um, that's like a proper meeting between the two of us, and it's like a nice vibe that album. And I think the two of us as producers we could do some brilliant work. I'm interested in how the um, the late night endless record you, you've made with Pinch um, uses and deconstructs music f that you've worked on throughout your career. Why did you decide to go down that route? Uh, like I said, we started with um, the first tune we cut was the Run Them Away tune, which I wrote with Bim years ago, the lyrics. And um, I'd obviously we met, you know, it's terrible because Bim Sherman's dead, you know, Lizard's dead, Prince Farai, and last year Style Scott was murdered, and it's like very, very heavy duty, you know, you end up, you, you, to me it's almost unreal when somebody dies, but it, it's right in you and it does kind of hit you for six, I must be honest. And we still miss Bim a lot, I mean, so the first starting point was I wanted to try revitalising that tune, because I thought it was quite relevant with the... Um, you know, the American militarization of the planet, I thought it fitted in quite quite uh, well. And I thought I'd like to try and do a quite a, um, a thumping chip version of that. 
it ended up more like a meditative one than how some of the other versions we did were much more digital or whatever. But that one's quite um, a beautiful little piece of music. But that, we started with that for that reason. And we only touched a couple of the old on you samples. The rest of it's all new stuff, you know, um, with the vocals in Nigeria, the, 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 the stuff with Freddie and all sorts of other bits on there all, are all new. But finding that balance was important. Generally speaking, what kind of vantage point did you have as as the sounds of dub uh, and reggae were absorbed into jungle and drum and bass and dubstep in the UK? Uh, to me, it's just all evolution. I think the the you know you look at if 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 uh, reggae just stayed at its one form and that was all it was, um, it would you know uh, it would become nostalgia and it would be dead. I mean, to some degree, it it, it goes in and out of that, but the reggae has established it as an international musical force and its many um, variants, the, the legacy of Jamaican music going from, you know, ska, rock, steady, to into um, reggae, into dub, into dancehall, um, into, into ragga, then evolving into jungle, into dubstep. It's all bass music anyway. I still like the stuff with the flavours, more minor chords, more when you've got lyrics, good lyrics, conscious lyrics. I think for, for um, open-minded fans of the, the, the Jamaican stuff and the uh, original bass music, Jungle and, you know, good end of, it's the good end of anything though. You've got absolutely awful um, drum and bass and you've got awful kind of wah, 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 dubstep, gratuitously, you know, just press a button and uh, make a load of bollocks really. But there's so much of that, but the top end of, of both are just, you know, as great as anything, you know, stunning. And, um, you know, things like Berry or Mala, Pinch, you know, the, uh, the junglist movement, you know, Congo Natty, it's right up my street. It's got the right flavours and carrying the flame, keeping the, the torch burning. And it, it helps us because we could, you can drop in an evening with that music, you can still drop a Roots tune from 1972, 73 that almost fits in perfectly, you know. You mentioned before uh, some of the people you've collaborated quite closely with and been friends with have you know who have sort of um, passed away down the years. Uh, in in the mid eighties, Prince Farai was murdered. It, it seemed like eighty three, eighty three. Yeah, mm. it, 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 you left behind um, reggae for a few years there. It, was that a kind of reaction to that? Yeah, I was really, I was really um, angry, really, when he was murdered, or and upset. So was everyone, you know. So was my wife and. Uh, all of our all of our friends and everything. So, but again, it was just wasn't almost real because you did all these stories about Jamaica and the violence, and suddenly it's real and it's like you're part of a, a movie or a dream or something odd. And um, I felt I felt I, to be honest, that it just coincided that the next year I met Keith LeBlanc, Doug Wimbish, and Skip, and Mark Stewart, and. Um, Ari up and everybody was all in, you know, our other, my other friends were into what was going on in New York and I suddenly got invited there because of a tune I made with Akabu called Watch Yourself with Steve Beresford and a crew. Got invited over and I en ended up meeting all these amazing people who, who remain firm friends to this day. So for a period there of about three years, I, I really didn't do any reggae records till I did um, Time Boom, The Devil Dead with Lee Perry. So. 
Well, and I guess, you know, Lee Perry is someone you've been working with for probably nearly 30 years now. Um, tell me a bit about what he's been he's been like to work with. Um, Lee's, Lee's just the best fun to work with ever. He's, he's great company when you get to know him. And he's got he's got a really good sense of humour and he's got this mischief about him. He's like a kind of uh, a naughty a naughty person with a really abstract sense of humour and amazing spiritual kind of things going on. That um making music. He be, you know, he believes in magic and he believes something special is gonna happen if you're working. And I learned a lot of things like that from him because I've seen him, you know, set fire to somebody's sock while they've been sleeping in the studio. I honestly have. And he kicks people out if their energy's bad or they're asking too many questions or it's too, like, negative things. He pick, Boy, is he sensitive. He really is sensitive. He picks up on it. And, um, you know, if, if you're going to go to the studio, you're going there to do something, you know, he thinks you're going to do holy work. He doesn't think of it. You know, that's how he views things. And it's a, it's a very good way to go. Because if you if you say, oh, I'm going to sit in front of a computer screen and program some foot drums, it's kind of, oh, my God. Get you know, get this fella out of here. You know, let him go and do that on his own in a room. And that really is what happens a lot now. I think with Lee's is that pursuit of um, stuff. He's still, he's still exactly the same now at nearly 80. And he's still got the mischief and he's still got the energy of a kid. I mean, I did a gig with him a couple of weeks ago. He just got off a plane from Jamaica. We're due to go on stage at midnight. We ended up going on stage at half past two in the morning, freezing cold outside in Italy. And, um, you know, he, he just danced around the stage for an hour and, an hour and 20 minutes, like nothing. Uh, never sits down, so his back's got his per you know, perfectly straight. You know what? What a man! I've you know, having worked with him. I just uh, you have to just make sure you contribute and you know push him and make sure you do your best when you're working because he's he's still just flying so many ideas. You have to like try and con condense them and get get the best result out of him. I think. And there's obviously that school of of production, but the the, the role of a producer has changed so much over the past twenty or thirty years. What do you see as the the role of a producer now? I think the, the word producers vary. I mean, some people are producers, the financer, and he's the one who's but the one who's got the ultimate choice because they're putting up the money. Another producer is somebody like Quincy Jones, who's just a musical, you know, genius kind of thing. Uh, you've got someone like Lee who is just bouncing off. He's musical, you know, and then you've got someone else who's controlling everything in a box. You know, I, I think the words just. Whatever you know, the musicians are producing. I always think I'm producing with the people I'm working with, or, um, but you know, if I'm financing something, I'm calling the shots. I don't know the the role, the role, the word producers quite a, a wide word really. Nowadays, it tends to be one man and his box. What <laughs> is quite funny, but I still like the interplay between people. And the fact is, if I'm choosing something, the chemistry might. If I've got, for example, George Oban playing bass and put George Oban with Bruce Smith or Style Scott or Keith LeBlanc, it might work better that the chemistry between those two and knowing the chemistry might work with somebody that hasn't worked and those kind of things, that's a, a part of my role perhaps if I, if I want to make some magic or getting a wonderful programmer like Jazz Wad or Pinch or somebody and say, look, why don't we get a little bit of live performance from 
Skip McDonald or one of our other crew and try or, or get somebody from outside we've never tried before and, and see what we come up with. In the late 80s, you had some some chart success with uh, Tackhead's MC, Gary Clayle. How did that collaboration come to pass? Uh, well, that was just a, a, a weirdest freak situation because uh, Gary was a mate of Mark Stewart's. We cut a tune, Skip cut a tune with him one night. I cut another tune with him and we just let him MC a little bit throughout an evening from the desk. So we kept the evening running. The idea was the doors would open and from the beginning of the doors to when people went home, all you heard was our music. So we let Gary DJ a little bit and then we wrote the um, the the human the beef track and the human nature track and then Bobby Marshall got Paul Oakenfold and Steve Osborne to remix it. It weren't even my mix, it was the hit. If you hear my version, it would have never been a hit in a month of Sundays. Um, so to be honest with you, we just had this fluke hit and suddenly you got Gary propelled as like an artist. You know, it was quite, it was quite amusing. And it, it kind of went a bit downhill after some initial success, I guess. I think, you know, if you look back on things, you probably have regrets in life about, you know, not looking after yourself properly with, you know, maybe drinking too much or whatever you might do. Um, and I, I just think things, you know, if I look back on things like that, you, you, you know, it's not like regrets. I think it's uh, it, it was what it was. It's just... Um, Maybe people shouldn't, you know, maybe all of us go for lives and you think you, you wish you hadn't maybe got taking drugs or do whatever and get disconnected from uh, where you sh your head should be probably. You've also just started a new series called At The Controls. Um, the aim of this one is to kind of show showcase your skills as a as a live sound engineer and as a DJ. Tell me about about this series. Um, I think a lot of people haven't sit, d d don't know that, that what happened is I made lots of records in that period, lots and lots. I was like working. I only slept every other night for quite a few years. So I'd get up on a Monday, go to sleep on a Tuesday night, get up on a Wednesday, go to sleep on a Thursday night and stuff like that. <clears throat> I was literally steamrolling making tunes to try and pay off debts because I was ho I was only owing so much money to like studios and stuff. Is they'd rather have a flow of money even though they had the debt, you know. So, and studio time in those days was wasn't cheap. It was like twenty eight pounds an hour. Looking back on, which is was quite a lot of money in those days. So what I did was, the result was I made lots and lots and lots of records, and um, with this, we um, my friend and I, well my friend who put put you know the compilations together, he's just suggesting we'll try this, try that. And it's good because I was working with someone who I trust and we're highlighting a lot of things that I'd even forgotten about, to be quite honest. So the idea being to, for people to see the aspects of stuff that we made then that isn't um, just strictly the more obvious reggae ones. And it's, cause it's basically non-reggae, really. Yeah, to, uh, I wanted to ask you a bit specifically about the African Head Charge uh, project and how that sort of came to pass African Head Charge, I'd, um, Bonjo had been in Croatian Rebel and he was a, a, a really great percussionist and he liked uh, reggae percussion but also the Nyabingi and African percussion and um, Afro-Cuban kind of stuff. So um, I'd 
wanted to experiment in the studio a bit more. So I basically heard about, uh, I heard Brian Eno's My Life in the Bush of Ghosts and he did an interview and he talked about, I have a vision of a psychedelic Africa. And at the time I thought, oh, you're pretentious, you know, but then I thought about it for a minute and I thought, no, it's actually quite mad. Why don't we? Because we were working in Berry Street Studio where I was taking all the credit time off. Yeah, make an album and just make it like a mad, really tripped out African type dub record because I still to this day think there's not a lot, not enough um, of the black African heavy rhythms in, in, in much music. There's just not enough because it's, to a lot of people, it's just almost too dark for them. I don't know. So we, we explored that and I made an album of like basically experimentation and built it around Bonjo's percussion with the, you know, we did the music and then the layers upon layers of him playing percussion and sped things up, slowed things down, tape manipulation and stuff like that. And that was 81, I think, did the first one. And that, um, that album was a slow starter, but we started getting people saying, oh, I actually love this. Or I'm lying on the floor with this mad record playing <laughs> running over my body. And it, it found quite a few friends that first, uh, that first album. And um, it was probably not until we got to the fourth album that it really started getting more cohesive. And by the time we got to the fifth album, it was like eight years later before we even did a gig. I think the first gig was kind of 88, 89, 89, I think. Bonjo came to me and said, I, you know, what, what a mind if he did it live. And I said, what a mind, I'd be really happy. And he put a band together and started kind of representing it live. And that evolved into Songs of Praise and In Pursuit of Shashamani Land and so on. In terms of all the different projects you've worked on, is there is there some something uh, or are there some specific things that you find a lot of people uh, are rediscovering now? I think um, hopefully this new, you know, these new releases will get people kind of curious to investigate um, the back catalogue of stuff I've done because um, a lot of it's just lost in space kind of thing. So I think. Um, a lot of the reggae heads might not like the whole of show at the controls, but then a lot of other people curious about music and whatever, they'll say, oh, well, that's really interesting. I can see, wow, that's from, you know, 79, 88, one or whatever, and it still sounds good. Some tunes don't sound as good as others, but I can hear evolution of sound and things in it. I mean, you, it feels like in 2015, you're keeping busier than ever. You've had the um, late night endless. You've got at the controls. You're doing a residency at NTS radio. Um, what else have you have you got sort of on the in the pipeline? Well, at the moment, I'm I'm involving a live show um, with Pinch. That's like we take a recording studio on stage. You know, we've got like a, a 32 channel analog mixing desk, and we're basically doing live mixing, and that's quite good fun. So it's slightly different. You know, we're pretty different every night. I'm doing a pretty similar thing myself, and um, I'm adamant that I'm gonna. Um, see a lot of my productions handled properly and out properly. And that's and at the moment, I'm quite happy with the way, what way things are set up and getting it promoted for the first time in probably 15 years isn't doing any harm at all. And that's uh, a wonderful job being done on that front. And um, I'm quite, you know, I'm actually feeling quite positive and confident and that the next set of new productions I, I have will be um, will be wonderful. 